Welcome to the Green Element podcast, where we meet business leaders and innovators transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable, and in the process, help you on your journey of sustainability. I'm your host, Will Richardson. Today, we are speaking with Duncan Kerr, the CEO of Aristec, and Luke Reed, the head of research and development. Aristec is a multi-award winning engineering company who deliver high-tech projects relating to hydrogen fuel cells and market hybrid turbo technology systems for motor vehicles. Duncan, Luke, welcome. Thank you very much, Will. It's great to have you here. And if I may, I'd like to start by asking you both about your journey and how you came to work in this industry. Well, I was uh, working at a venture capital firm called Midvin in 2010 and I made the first venture capital investment in Aristec uh, as a fund manager. Uh, I left uh, Midvin in 2015, consulted for a while and then I was asked to join the the board in a full-time capacity in 2018. So I've gone through the whole journey over those uh, getting to 11 years now. Brilliant and what about you Luke? Um, I actually started off in the uh, in the Ministry of Defence and um... After doing my graduate scheme and, uh, and staying there for a bit, I felt that I wanted to get a bit more uh, out of my engineering um, career and then started looking for a company, um, ideally in an industrial estate, doing a bit more hands-on engineering and uh, a bit more analysis. And then I found Aristech and was quite interested in what they were doing. And that was, a, that was about 2011 and uh, yeah, been there since. Brilliant. And in a nutshell, what does Aristech do? I know that I... Um did a really bad job of introducing you at the beginning. <laughs> but could you kind of help me and our guests know what you do? Well, it might help to have a bit of history. So the, the reason why the, the company was founded was to reduce emissions of internal combustion engines. And the vision of the founder was to split a turbocharger into a turbine that generated electricity, a storage device, and an electric supercharger. And this, by doing splitting the functions of a turbocharger, you could fill in the turbo lag at, at low engine speed. And what emerged out of that was um, an invention of a way of controlling motors to spin them very fast, very efficiently. And after uh, a diesel gate, uh, when the whole world changed, and due to electric, electrification, that application wasn't adopted as much as we all hoped. But then around three, four years ago, there were loads of inquiries coming from hydrogen fuel cells. And our technology is ideally suited there because of its efficiency and some other properties. Luke and I were talking almost in layman's terms, um, what it is that you're doing. And in a normal combustion engine in a vehicle, you have oxygen that is fed into the fire in order to boost that engine. And that's kind of the turbo, isn't it? In a normal petrol engine, which you're doing, but in a different, in a different capacity. But, and that's what the, that's what the turbocharging you're talking about is, is introducing air into, or oxygen into the hydrogen to make it burn more efficiently. Well, it's, it's not quite burning. It's, it's a, um, a chemical reaction that, results in generating electricity. It's a reaction between uh, hydrogen and oxygen. 
And our compressors are used to pump in their oxygen to increase the power density of the fuel cell. Otherwise, you've only got oxygen coming in at atmospheric pressure. So we increase the pressure of the oxygen so that you can have more reaction between the oxygen and the hydrogen. And it's similar to a combustion engine where you do have combustion, where you uh, um, need to have the correct fuel and oxygen mix to have ideal combustion. One of the problems at low engine speeds when turbochargers are not active because there's not enough waste energy is that the um, fuel is not fully burnt. And that's why, you know, you must have seen on the motorway when a, a, a diesel car starts accelerating, you get this big plume of black smoke coming out the back. And that's because the fuel's not fully burned. So with regards to climate change, how will the products at Aristec help to deliver a sustainable future? I think on, on that well, side, we're part we, of enabling... We, enabling technology that will allow hydrogen fuel cells to be more practical in a transport application. And, and the reason why we're special is that we're very efficient and the, the, the air compressor on a hydrogen fuel cell is the biggest parasitic loss. And so if you're more efficient on the compressor, it means you use less hydrogen, you'd have increased range and the whole system is more efficient. How long do you think it will be before we start to see hydrogen technology becoming mainstream and in which industries do you think? I think in the short term, in the next two to three years, it'll be adopted in commercial vehicles, that's trucks, buses, delivery vans, in, in applications where you don't need a full uh, fueling infrastructure everywhere, like you do with, with cars and petrol stations. They're ubiquitous, but hydrogen stations are not yet. So the first adopters will be where you don't need a full network of, of refueling stations. So long distance trucks and also uh, buses because they always go back to the same base. So you only need a filling station at the base. Similarly for delivery vehicles and things like forklift trucks, which are just sitting in the same warehouse all, all day long. Later on, once the, 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 the fueling stations are, are put in place, then we'll see adoption in passenger vehicles but it's all, it's all determined by the rollout of the refueling infrastructure. We are reading a lot about the different, um, I was going to say the different quality of hydrogen, i.e. blue, green. It makes no difference to you what type of hydrogen is being used, I'm assuming. No. Uh, and in fact, you can also use um, methanol uh, as a source of um, hydrogen, which is, is not very green at all um, but at least at the point of use there are zero emissions it doesn't matter what hydrogen you use but if you want to have um, no emissions throughout the whole um, energy chain then you need to use green hydrogen and in your opinion what does the future of travel look like and what technology will we be using i think we'll be using a combination of technologies for for short range applications possibly mainly battery for passengers short range where where there's an anxiety of, of running out of, of charge for longer range um, it would be hydrogen um, I think that you know diesel will be around for a bit longer they're going to you know in off highway applications where you need a lot of power um, they're going to make it cleaner by reducing the emissions there we can play a part in that 
Um, and then uh, for, and for short-range aviation, we also have hydrogen fuel cells playing a, a part. But I, I, I doubt you'd be flying from the UK to China, for example, on, on a hydrogen in any near future. Right. And is that because the capacity, there just wouldn't be enough capacity in, in the aeroplane in order to fuel it from here to China? I think so. Because EasyJet have bought a electric plane company, haven't they? And they're looking at rolling out electric-only flights for short haul. Yeah. I think by 2025 is what they're saying. Well, we, we're partnered with Zero Avia on a um, government-funded grant project, and that's to... Um, power a propeller airplane 600 kilowatt with a hydrogen fuel cell powertrain and that will be for short passenger flights up to 14 passengers brilliant i mean to put it into perspective to the listener what does that look like in co2 emissions compared to say a normal passenger car so if you were driving from here to berlin or flying from here to berlin in that plane um i think if you were driving a hydrogen-powered car or flying in a hydrogen-powered airplane, they're both emission-free. I think that's really interesting what you've just said because you're basically saying that we potentially could fly short distances emission-free in the near future. Yeah, that's definitely the vision of, of Zero Avia. Well, uh, yeah, so, so I guess an interesting point by Duncan there, and and, and expanding on what you've said. Um, so, if you were look, if you were to say fly to um, Berlin uh, in a, in a hydrogen powered plane um, compared to a uh, an internal combustion engine, then it, I, it it does depend on how that hydrogen is formed and whether it was done using green technology. I guess where where the market is at the moment, it, it, it's that's still in development. But then compared with, a, uh, if you were to com- compare it directly with a hydrogen car, because you could drive that distance in a hydrogen car, um, I think uh, air travel would, would still be the greener way of doing it because it's a much more efficient way of moving more people <laughs> longer distances. And I'm, I'm thinking that the 14 passengers that you, Duncan, said would just increase as the technology increases, you end up with 100, 200, 300 people, which is what you'd want to be. It's, it, it, it's not particularly feasible to have 14 people flying. Uh, you'd have an awful lot of planes flying around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the 14 is, is just for very regional, um, you know, hopping between islands sort of thing, not, not mainstream. And, and it is small steps, especially with um, aerospace. It's a very uh, safety-conscious in, uh, industry. And, and these, these, these steps need to be done first before you start moving up to, to the larger planes and maturing the technology gradually. And the uptake of people and organisations taking on your technology, what has been a barrier so far? You've been around since 2010. Um, we're now in 2021. Why have we not been, you know, using you more? You're probably asking the same question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the, the uh, hydrogen um, has only come of age, and, and, and I can't explain exactly why it started being adopted sort of more aggressively from 2017. I think I think it's 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 mainly driven by governments saying that, you know, you've got to cut out uh, petrol and diesel and you know 
if you hear some academics, they say they there aren't there aren't enough raw materials to make enough batteries for the UK globally to to go straight over to to fully battery electric vehicles. So uh, I think that the the global OEMs have realised that hydrogen is going to play a big part, and the tier ones who've um, approached us to to use our technology have realized a lot of them that their whole businesses are going to collapse um, because if you move away from diesel petrol and you're a transmission company or a diesel engine company your business is going to disappear if you don't do something so they're all investing heavily into hydrogen it's interesting i've been doing uh, i've been working in this space for long enough to back in the early 2000s hydrogen was the panacea hydrogen then was very much more um, going to be changing transportation than electric vehicles. And I remember reading about the research um, and development that was coming out of China because China were quite big into hydrogen, probably because then, you know, they, they, they could produce the electricity very cheaply in order to produce the hydrogen. Um, I mean, what, why do you think it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned China because Luke made a very a good point when we were discussing it earlier and that's that our business um, we, we had a real hiccup because we were getting most of our inquiries on hydrogen from China um, and in fact we, we had two offers to buy the business but then COVID hit and you can't really do business with China without face-to-face -face meetings because of the culture. So we were badly affected by that. And then we were almost rescued by the UK government waking up and starting to put money into hydrogen uh, with a whole lot of, of grant-funded projects. You know, we won three of them towards the end of last year, two in aviation, one in um, commercial vehicles. And the other thing that, that changed in China last year is, is everything is, is policy-driven and subsidy-driven there. And they changed the subsidy on, on hydrogen fuel cells to only support the larger fuel cell stacks. And at that stage, we were only able to support smaller fuel cell stacks. And so that cut away most of our business opportunities. So we, we really were pretty grateful to the UK government for stepping in and, and supporting hydrogen towards the end of last year. We're going to be very much reliant on subsidies and grants, aren't we, with regards to this technology for the, at least the foreseeable future? I think so. You know, we, we're a small part of the, the, the grant with, with GKN Aerospace, but that whole programme, I think, Luke, is at £54 million, pounds, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's quite significant. And you know, if 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 companies the size of GKN Aerospace are going to need government support, then you would have thought if anybody could fund it themselves, they could. But but no, that they are relying on on government support. We we're in another program with Cummins, which the total program there is twenty million, and that's relied on government support. And then Zero Avia is actually a California-based company which came over to the UK because the UK is more advanced in subsidising hydrogen projects. 
and we've only just started doing it. That doesn't say much for the States. No. <laughs> <laughs> Reading between the lines there. <laughs> what do you think the drivers behind the transition for from fossil fuel to sustainable alternatives are? Is it cost efficiency, sustainability, or a mixture of all of these elements? I think it's 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 getting that um, increase in global temperatures so that um, we don't all drown in, in rising sea levels. And <laughs> it's, it's global warming, I think, is driving the whole thing. Aerospace is known... Oh, sorry, Luke, did you want to... Well, I, I was going to say it's, it's, it's an interesting one because I think people are aware now of, of their, their effect on, on emissions and, and what they can cause to, to global temperatures. But at the same time, there is still a desire to own your own vehicle, to still go on holiday to faraway places. And if we don't, if we don't address those issues, people aren't just going to sit in their own, in their own town or village for the rest of their lives. People will still want to go out because it's, it's human instinct to go and explore. And, and now people are used to having their own cars. So I, I think if we, were to, if we were to be realistic about it, then the technology needs to be developed so that people can carry on living the way they're perhaps used to. Not to the same extent, but we're... But it's important to develop this technology that's, so people can travel to faraway places, but with lower emissions and to, and to try and um, reduce people's impact on the environment. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think we, as an organisation, help companies and organisations become more sustainable. And so we do the carbon reporting for them, but we get asked a lot, well, you know, what about offsetting? What about this? And we can't... Mm, it's not actually scientifically correct to be doing that, but why not? You're a travel company. If you're in the travel industry, you're a travel company. Invest in the industry you're in in order to low your indus- lower your industry's emissions. And that ties into exactly what you've just said, Luke. Because from where we see it, if you are a very large travel company and you are invested in trying to get people traveling and you also know that you need to have them doing it sustainably, then investing in low-carbon technologies is a kind of a no-brainer. Because the fast, the more we put money into these technologies as people using them, then the faster we'll be able to get the tech. We can't just put our money into growing a tree that will take a carbon out in 100 years and hope that the aerospace industry will sort everything else out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we need to try and stop the problem at the source. This is veering away from your field of expertise, but how do you think we can do that from a communication <laughs> point of view? Well, I, th- I think that these these travel companies need to uh, need to have campaigns to educate the the end consumer of, of what's going on. Uh, and the other alternative, which probably nobody likes, is is for um, governments to have a tax policy that 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 drives the right behavior you know if you if you if you're um flying an airplane and you're using biofuels rather than fossil fuels you should pay less tax shouldn't you i don't think you pay any tax do you on aviation fuel no i mean on you know um landing charges and yeah no but i I, i'm kind of but you don't pay tax on aviation fuel. I mean, well, what's that? what is that about? <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of agreeing with you. Yeah. <laughs> Aerospace is known for producing 
high levels of emissions. So it must be really exciting to see that Aristec are expanding into that area. Is it just the aerospace and the transportation sector that you are working in, or are you able to actually transition into other industries? We, we, we are, and, and we've done some work in industrial compressors, for example, as well, where they're, they're after efficiency uh, as well. You know, and where, where a, few, a few percentage points of increase makes a difference to them. And that's in applications such as food processing, nuclear uh, and, and medical, where clean air is, is needed. And, and that's all about, about the cost of, of electricity running these compressors. And as an organization, you have, how many people are there within your organization? Because you're across a number of different offices around the globe, aren't you? Uh, small offices. Um, we, we're growing very fast. Um, I think we're at 52 now. Um, we've got a number of vacancies. Uh, we find it quite difficult to recruit the necessary skill sets. There's a, quite a high demand, as you can expect, with the whole uh, world electrifying in the world of transport. There's a high demand for power electronics skills. Uh, so there's a there's a shortage there. Uh, we have a few people in, in China. Uh, in other territories, we use agents. To help us find business. How do you manage your carbon footprint? Well, that's something that we haven't actually uh, got come to address yet. Um, it's been a focus on enabling um, decarbonisation of the industries we serve. We've we've still got to have a look at ourselves. Um, we've been we've been more in survival mode, <laughs> so that that's something that you know, when we're, we're a bit more stable, we, we can address. But so, for example, it's, it's, it's pretty trivial, but um, we think you're putting LED lights to replace all of the lighting in the, in the building that we're in in Leamington. Um, Luke um, is conscious of things in the design of our products as well, make them more sustainable. That's, that's actually a really nice transition into um, product cycle analysis. Is that something that you take into the put in the equation? Oh, very much so. Um, uh, so we see it's the the two sides of it: running the business where we're perhaps relatively early days in terms of sort of looking back at ourselves and seeing what we can do better from a day to day running of the company, but then also down uh, down at the product design level: how can we design our products to make sure they they are su- sustainable and um, um, to, uh, don't have any materials in them that cause, cause a negative effect to the environment. Um, when we're looking at these fuel cell compressors, there's quite a few elements of them that, that, that um, need quite um, high-tech materials, such as permanent magnets and um, the bearings that go into them can, can be quite exotic if we were to just use off-the-shelf items. So we spend a lot of time looking at those, those key areas and, and trying to work out how to um, uh, remove the, um, uh, the the worst offenders in terms of materials, um, 
um, things like dysposium in our in our permanent magnets and, and hexavalent chrome, which is uh, um, perhaps may have been more common a couple of years ago, and, and is generally seen as what you use on the type of bearings we use. But we've we've gone out of our way to make sure that we can engineer those those things out of our products. And that must be really hard because I think um, what we didn't touch upon when we were talking about the your um, technology is your the RPM the the amount of times um you can turn a oh, motor i don't know um <laughs> normal people do it at six was it 100 150 and then yours you do it at a thousand rpm well there's lots of different types of motors out there with various speeds but most of them are around a couple of thousand maybe a couple of tens of thousands of rpm to, to make our centrifugal compressors compact and efficient for the transport sector that we need to spin it uh, we're typically above a hundred thousand rpm and on top of that, because it's using it's it's uh, producing compressed air that needs to be fed into a hydrogen fuel cell, there must be no oil contamination in that air because that will um, uh, poison the the membrane that that uh, that transfer, transfers the, the protons. So that really limits us to what we can use for for bearing technology, and, and pretty much leaves us with uh, a type of bearing called a an air bearing which essentially is what it sounds like. We suspend the shaft on a cushion of air using various aerodynamic principles. Um, the, the, the problem comes when, when you bring that to a stop. Um, it has to touch down at some point, uh, and then you need some sort of coating on, on the shaft to, to be able to resist that touchdown. And, and traditionally, I say traditionally, I mean in the, in the, <laughs> in the, in the, in the recent past, uh, that has been... Um, sort of a hard dense chrome where where some sort of hexavalent chrome would be used in the process uh, and one of our uh, latest uh, developments is, is to just to make sure we can engineer that out, out of the product uh, and 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 at the end of it end up with a higher performing product which is still cost competitive because we are dealing with the the transport sector and cost is always an issue mm. so interesting and i think we, know, we haven't we haven't touched i don't think in detail on our key um IP advantage, and that's in in our controllers, which switch at a tenth of the rate of our competitors. So that enables us to go up to these high speeds, uh, and while remaining efficient and not overheating. And to to the environmental point as well, we actually use fewer uh, semiconductors to do it as well. What does that mean? Well, the controllers. It, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, the, con the controller is the, the, the um, electronics that sends the uh, currents to the, the motor um, to turn it around. Um, and typically, uh, our competitors, the, there are switches in these controllers that are switching current on and off. And the way that we control our motors, we're switching them at a tenth of the rate of our competitors. So it's kind of like brain capacity. The brain's being used less to do more. It's quite a good way of putting it. I'm just putting it in simple terms. Simple <laughs> terms. <laughs> Thank you so much for today. It's been it's been really really interesting listening to you and what you're doing, and I'm certainly going to be eagerly watching your organisation and how you're helping us and the whole world move to a more green future thank you for joining us thank you very much will thank you and 
Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Business Podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, why not join our post-podcast discussion in our online community at sustainabilitysolved.org. We will be sharing ideas and collaborating on technology and sustainability with our members. Join now and find a space to collaborate with like-minded professionals, learn more about sustainable business and inspire others to become more environmental. We also have an important update for our listeners. We'll be changing the name of this podcast to Sustainability Solved to better reflect the content of our podcast. You will still be able to access all our original podcasts on your preferred platform. And if you do enjoy this podcast, please make sure you subscribe so you can get every episode. And don't forget to follow Green Element on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.